Hello, this is Robert Crowther for ID the Future, a podcast of the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. What would happen if Charles Darwin were to come back today? That's the intriguing question posed by Nikhil John Ramju's fascinating short novel, I, Charles Darwin. This week, ID the Future concludes its audio adaptation of Ramju's book. Although next week we hope you'll return for an interview with the author, Nikhil John Ramju, about how he came to write I, Charles Darwin. If you'd like to get the book on which this audio production is based, visit icharlesdarwin.com. At that site, you can also find out how to purchase the entire audio production as an iTunes album or a CD. That's icharlesdarwin.com. In today's concluding episode of I, Charles Darwin, Darwin returns to his family home and offers some final reflections on his eye-opening visit to the 21st century. He lived in an age before antibiotics, before computers, and before the discovery of DNA. Yet Charles Darwin changed our science and culture forever. What would Darwin say if he returned to the Earth today? Find out in I, Charles Darwin. iCharlesDarwin.com Episode 5 The Return to Down House And so my fabulous errand, my return to the millennial new world of the 21st century, comes to an end. As I depart to whence I came, I will leave you with these humble observations. I knew when I spoke my last words at Down House to my dear Emma that my idea had transformed science and had given the world a new and revolutionary picture of human reality. In my time with you, I have studied the paradoxical evolution and devolution of my theory, and I have measured the powerful impact of my theory on the social and political world of the violent and astonishing century that followed my own. Through the intensest of inquiries, for my eye is as bright now as it was aboard the Beagle, I have observed many things. My idea, more than any other, lies at the heart of your fundamental confusion about human reality. That idea, which convinced the world that the saga of life flowed from an original cosmic accident through a vast blind mechanism to the infinite capacity of the brain of Einstein, that idea was my own. My theory robbed man of that which set him apart from all other creatures. It reduced him to a plaything of the collectivist secular creeds of your time, so lethal of historical consequence. My idea stamped the seal of science on the concept of man as malleable, perfectible, higher, hominid, maker of his own identity, morality, destiny. I have observed the inelectable falling away of my idea before the stunning testimony of an emergent new science now taking its place on the far, far side of complexity. I was indeed aware that my grand edifice was entirely theoretical, yet it changed the world. You speak of the Darwinian revolution, just as you honour equally the Newtonian or Copernican revolutions. You write and teach of the materialist paradigm that my idea fixed in the modern mind. You made of me a legend, Alpha and Omega, 
the prophet of a sovereign, blind, and mindless nature. One of the more imaginative of my disciples in your time has indeed posed the emergence of a consilience based upon my idea. All human activity, all branches of learning, all social life by the late 20th century affirmed and reflected the grand role I outlined for the random, unguided play of chance effects upon natural laws. My theory of everything. One of your historians has pronounced it the greatest idea ever. With consilience, however, I became dogma. The origin of species and the descent of man became annexed as texts of the Church of Darwin. There are mountains named for me, species of life, academic sinecures, even a city in Australia. I had not expected an evolution of evolution into a belief system. That my idea in the century to come would petrify into unassailable dogma, a metaphysics hostile to dissent, to heretical ideas, guarded about by custodians of the secrets like the ancient Egyptian priests, this I had not foreseen. The conversion of the mind of man to my theory and its author congealed in your time into a closed evolutionary school hostile to counter-inquiry, dismissive of criticism, and blind to contradictory evidence. My champions became negators of science, jailers of mind. My theory became a creed, the great myth of the 20th century. How remarkable it is that the physicists of your time escaped the paradigm clamp that the prophets of materialism, myself included, put in place. The philosophical and religious implications of the Big Bang universe they detected and measured empirically did not trouble them. Why are the physicists of your time free in spirit, but not the biologists? The follower of mine who spoke of consilience had it quite backwards. The great discoveries the world has seen in your time, in molecular biology, in the astonishing fine balance of the chemistry of the earth, in the fossil's unexpected testimony, in the revelations of your astrophysicists, all these conjoin in an empirical denial of a universe and a living world formed from a random, unguided playing out of unintelligent matter. You're witnessing consilience but it is an evidential consilience of something you and I did not expect. Let us first acknowledge that the inquirers among your molecular biologists have put in place a fact as incontestable as that the Earth orbits the Sun. Between the organic and the inorganic worlds, between the simplest living form and lifeless matter, the chasm is unbridgeable. Not only are there no transitional states of matter, non-living and living, such entities are, let us say, conceptually, molecularly impossible. My competence was the living world, its origins and processes and its fossilized evidence. My idea has become the world's dynamic idea for more than 150 years, shaping decisively the modern mind. Science is sealed to the notion of an ungodded universe. But the reign of my idea is now ending. My assertion of the blind evolution of life from a single cell to the infinite ranges of the biochemical electrical circuitry of the human brain falls before the overwhelming evidence of information-based, information-actuated processes of life in cell and genome. That biological information, specified in complex, can have no other origin than in the design of a great creative intelligence beyond human measure. 
To reduce design, manifestly evident in all nature, to the so-called appearance of design, as casuists of your time have argued, is as fatuous and sure a signal of cognitive defeat as a claim that the Earth orbits around the mere appearance of a sun. To say that design is accidental is to say that the space station currently circling the Earth assembled itself in a storm of cosmic wind. Specified complexity cannot not require a designer. Design without preceding intelligence fails the laws of causality and all rationality. Design is the inarguable fundamental descriptor of the universe and the material natural world. Science ineluctably follows truth where it will lead. Science has now put in place a new yet old idea of cosmos and life, supplanting my revelation of 1859. The concept of the continuity of all nature has long existed in the mind of man, but today it does not exist in the facts of nature. The great chain of evolution is broken. My theory was like a stream, once mighty in its course, that ran out in the desert sands. It has not led us to science's great sea the sea of truth. Metaphysics is not my competence. I leave to others the implications of the revolution in science that you are experiencing. But I must put to you this question. Who or what is design's intelligence, the crafter of the non-material information that the DNA of life cells and organisms codes and transmits to organic action? That intelligence is everywhere empirically demonstrable in our universe of a measurable beginning and a fine-tuned balance of physical laws and forces. That intelligence is empirically demonstrable in our living world of astounding integrated complexity and intricacy beyond marvel. We stand before the reality of a great all-encompassing mind, for intelligence is mind. We have reached a juncture in the development of science as great as the passing from the Ptolemaic to the Copernican world. Your riven century, a nexus of brilliance and violence, drops the scale from our eyes, returning mankind to a re-recognition of the purpose of the creature who stands at the apogee of life, a creature sharing physical and DNA commonalities with other chordates, vertebrates, primates, but utterly distinct in the living world for its unique possession of mind. The death of the materialist paradigm frees our eyes again to focus on the great compass of history. History is the remembered, documented record of humanity, encompassing all thought, all experience, all empirical knowledge, all science. History is how we know, and all we know. I recall again my blessed Emma, whose gentle, steadfast remonstrances reminded me that history's revelations are not those of science alone. Well before the first birth of science with the Greeks, a great revelation occurred in the world's axial time, as your philosopher Jaspers described it, that age when an awareness of a force governing man beyond nature put in place codes of moral law and set the foundations of civilizations simultaneously, independently, each of the other, in the valleys and vales of the ancient world. Axial time witnessed a dawning recognition that man was not nature only, but spirit. Historians tell us then of a turning point which followed, an event unique in human history. Your great Russian novelist Pasternak called it the only true revolution that has ever occurred. That event gave to history teleology, a timeline rooted in a new view of the world. 
History was not a circular thing locked to nature's birth to death cycle. History, unfolding in linear time, was ever pregnant with meaning. Other civilizations produced technology, but modern science arose and developed only in this civilization. Why? It was Judeo-Christian civilization, based on belief in a rational God, that viewed the universe and world as intelligible and contingent, promoting a seeking and inquiry, observation, experimentation and discovery. I leave you with that final observation. My privileged visitation, but for one remaining place, has ended. Before I prepare to depart, however, I wish to walk once again the sandwalk at Down. I believe I will not be observed by the latter-day tourists. I will doubtless see the passing curious, old scholars, and, I hope, the young schoolchildren, young students, young questioning minds. It is to the young, the rising generation, that I have recorded this epistle of my peregrinations among you, the testimony of my witness to a new scientific reality, and a testament to a new, unafraid and open world. I have come at last to Down, my beloved house in Kent, where I lived my happy life with Emma, and to which our sweet children, the delight of my life, came one by one. When we moved there, still in our youth, I jested I did not want to turn into a complete Kentish hog. For it was not provincial peace, but quiet that I sought in the village of Down, to study and experiment in my window and annex laboratories. How I enjoyed my sand walk, and the terrace walk too, along our beautiful valley. I wanted tranquillity, for I was ill much of my life, and nursed by you, my dear wife, my greatest blessing, my wise adviser and comforter, whose memory I seek, but to whom my revolutionary theory brought pain. You said that my ideas seemed to you to be putting God further and further off. Yes, I know that my idea foreclosed the hand of God, and I knew, too, to what that great denial ultimately led beyond our Christian belief. Its meaning was, no purpose. You wrote me a letter from the heart saying, my own dearest would indulge you, and indeed, I did love you deeply. You said that my holding to proof in all things might color my approach to things impossible to prove that might be above our comprehension. You wished for and believed in my patience with you. And you told me, my beloved, you should be most unhappy if you thought we did not belong to each other forever. Did you know of, did you read the note I inscribed at the end of your letter, my dear Emma? When I am dead, know that many times I have kissed and cried over this. And to another letter you wrote, I appended this note. God bless you. As I visit Old Down again, I consider the charge I have been given. In this testament, I have observed as closely as I know how, what became the vast legacy of my idea and its quixotic impact on the historical world. That was my charge. About my living, genetic, progeny, I was forbidden contact. You may not interfere in the lives of your grandchildren, which now number in the many generations. This the authority instructed. How I love to play with my own dear children. On my rounds along the sand walk, they would beckon me to come and play. All my life I remembered my little son at four, who tried to bribe me with a sixpence to come and play. And did I not give in, overrule my ever-ready compulsion not to waste time? 
But I wonder, as I walk now the familiar grounds of Down, and as I enter, invisibly with the tourists, the sanctum of my study, to see the great board on which I wrote, and the couch where a sick child might lie dozing or watching me as I worked, I wonder and wish with all my heart to know of my now perhaps four or five generations of grandchildren and what they all came to do. Did they marry? Did they find happiness like mine? What did they experience in your terrible time of civilization's great world wars which decimated generations of English boys? Were my grandsons among them? The boys who fell with so many other English, French and German boys on the Marne and at Verdun? My granddaughters, were they, were their babies, to be young widows weeping upon telegraphed news from the bloody war fronts of Europe and the world? That world of posterity of which I was an instrument in the making. But I was instructed not to inquire of them. It will do you no good, I was told. It is not your commission, but... Oh, how I would love an hour with you, my grandchildren, in generations now living, to tell you what I have learned, that it might free you as you grow from that great myth that paralyzed the human spirit in your time. How I would like to sit with you, hug you, talk to you, tell you how much I love you my grandchildren so far removed, just as I did in those happiest days of my life on earth with my own precious children. Along my sand walk, I see a young boy about eleven and his little sister perhaps seven. They walk at not quite mid-distance before me, my ear sometimes catching their innocent chatter. But do they sense my too close observation of them, for both now turn to look at me, I'm suddenly not invisible, and I am my old self, dressed as I was then. I feel for my great white beard. Yes. My grandchildren look at me in wonder, their eyes beautiful, the boys green, the girls dark brown, but they're unafraid. They recognize me, and there is love in their eyes. My grandchildren. I close my testament. The report of my errand to earth with a question to my grandchildren and to the posterity of my grand idea of the material origin and nature of all things. What is the origin and descent of love, beyond all the tendentious anthropology, that feeble and contradictory evolutionary psychology of your disbelieving time? Now, we do not possess a selfish gene fitting us out to act altruistically for the survival and progress of the race. Would not such a gene compel us to love only the strongest of our offspring, to practice infanticide upon the weakest? I see that your selfish gene advocates, bold causists that they are, emphasize that it is not the gene itself, but only its effects that make the gene appear selfish. But I will not say, I cannot say, that my dear Emma's love, my children's love and my love for them, emerged out of a cosmic or microcosmic accident. How gladly would I have given my life for little Annie, my daughter, so sweet of face, coquettish as she turned along the sandwalk to delight me in some way from her bright nature. And when at ten years of age she was dying, for as we nursed her we could not save her, the love she gave us in her eyes and in her last word was an utterly selfless love. I quite thank you, she said. Oh, how I loved her my sweet little daughter brought into this world by my dearest Emma. Why must I have loved her so? Where is the gene, the molecular strand in me, that possesses, translates, enables the message of the love which I have felt to its very furthest depths, this immaterial thing that is the centre of my being? 
The gene strand for my love is not there. It is not in the DNA which I, in my time, unbeknownst, possessed. So where did it come from? Give me your answer, my celebrants, who embarrass me exceedingly each year with Darwin Day. Where is the gene that does not exist that would make me say to death, heaven, or to God, take me, take me, not her? I am again on my beloved sand walk with the children. Are they truly my very own posterity, these children who look at me so lovingly, as if I am indeed their old grandfather of a distant generation? Yes, they know me. I break my promise. Or is my promise being broken for me? The boy and the girl run to my open arms. I embrace them, hug them, kiss them. They are my own. What are your names? I ask. Andrew, Alison. I place my testament in their young hands. Goodbye, I say. I love you. I love you. I, Charles Darwin is based on the novella by Nicol John Romju. Audio adaptation by John West and Jens Jorgensen. Narration by Robert Blythe and Andres Williams. Music by Pond5.com. Copyright 2013 by Nicol John Romju and Discovery Institute. All rights reserved. If you'd like to get the original book on which this audio production is based, visit icharlesdarwin.com. At that site, you can also find out how to purchase the entire audio production as an iTunes album or a CD. Be sure to listen for next week's interview with I, Charles Darwin author, Nikhil John Romju. For ID the Future, this is Robert Crowther. Thanks for listening. This program was recorded by Discovery Institute Center for Science and Culture. ID the Future is copyright Discovery Institute 2013. For more information, visit www.intelligentdesign.org or www.idthefuture.com.